wonder if you've ever had anyone tell you <clears throat> that they had a, a boring testimony. You know, growing up in the, in the religious South, there were certain features of worship services where someone would stand up and give their testimony. And a testimony is simply a little short biography about the circumstances surrounding their coming into the Christian faith. And very oftentimes, these people who would share these stories uh, would talk about some really dramatic things that would happen to them uh, when it all came down. I, I, saved a, I saved an article from about six years ago from uh, CNN.com uh, about then-presidential candidate Ben Carson. Carson was a professing Christian, and it was this regular part of his uh, campaigning speech to talk about what happened to his conversion to Christianity, which, according to him, had a very violent, very tumultuous past that in an instant was turned around by a spiritual encounter with Jesus, after which he said nothing was the same at all. Here was the problem, though. There was no one from Carson's early life that could corroborate his depictions of that particular era of his life. They said, yeah, there was a time in which he started going to church on a regular basis and didn't come back uh, and didn't turn away from it. But the consequences before it, it felt a little, a little overdramatic, even to the point of maybe being somewhat untrue. Well, you can imagine how CNN relished reporting on this. But they did talk about that there's this rite of passage that most evangelicals feel where you're supposed to have this really dramatic story uh, that talked about your conversion. I remember when I was in uh, college, I was listening to, at a time, a Christian comedian. That's a thing. <clears throat> who had a whole thing that he did about his conversion from this wild-eyed background in Satanism, uh, of all things, and how the Lord had worked through him and, and, and done all these amazing things. And I, I used to watch youth, you know, get sort of scared straight uh, by this guy's presentations. Um, problem was, none of it was true. He was exposed in the years to come as a complete and utter fraud. Okay, so here I am growing up in the midst of all this context <clears throat> with faithful parents who believed uh, faithful church attenders. I don't ever remember a time when Christianity was shoved down my throat. They, my parents just lived their lives as best as they could by the Bible, and I came to a point in my life where I found it compelling. But I would always listen to these people tell these stories, and it made me feel insecure. I mean, should that have happened to me if I'm really going to believe myself to really be a Christian? Look, I mention all this because we believe that what Luke has been doing through the book of Acts is selecting these stories, especially in, in chapters 7 through 9, to show how the gospel was moving beyond its Jewish borders. The execution of Stephen, while horrific and terrifying to the early church, God seized upon to push Christians out into a non-Jewish Gentile world. Uh, chapter 8 that we didn't have time to study shows how Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, was the, to see how Christianity was creeping out and around into the neighboring areas. But in chapter 9, what we just read, Luke records the conversion of honestly the least likely person to lead past this shattering of Jewishness in this new Jesus movement, who was going to lead Christianity all the way, not only beyond the realm of pa Palestine, but deep within the heart of the Roman Empire. And he is a Pharisee, of all things, by the name of Saul. Now look, the first thing you've got to notice is how often this story gets told. Remember in our Bible study that we pay attention to repetition? That's a big deal. Three times in the book of Acts, this story gets recounted. Which is what I think he's saying is, Luke is saying, there is something about the conversion of Saul 
that should be a template for the way you and I become Christians. Okay, but I'm insecure again now, right? Because you look at all these dramatic visions and, and voices from heaven and being struck with blindness. Are all of those things supposed to happen to us as we become a Christian? Or I can't be confident that I really am? And my answer to that is a very short no. But I do think, though, that there are elements in Paul's life that indeed should typify every Christian conversion. Let me see if I can put it this way. If you do not have echoes of the story of what happened to Saul, soon to become Paul, in your own understanding of the Christian faith, it's possible that you might have gained the wrong message and that Christianity, what it was, was not the genuine article of Christianity. So I want to look this morning at the four aspects that I believe are coming from this text. The first one is we see a preparing God we see a vision of Jesus, we see an entrance into a community, and we see a newfound mission. Let's look at that first one, a preparing God. Okay, look, in verses 1 and 2, I think what Luke is saying is you have here a man who is obsessed. Saul has thrown out decorum of any kind. He has lost control and is persecuting the, the, the church, honestly, with like a disturbing zeal. What in the world is going on? Well, John, w, John R. W. Stott has a whole commentary on the book of Acts where he says there's a lot of people that when they look at the life of Saul, they think that this was the very first thing that he ever heard. Like he was going along in his life, and then whammo, he gets hit by the thing, and he starts going by this opposite direction after this vision. But that's actually not the case, Stott says. And what happens is you get all kinds of evidence that God had actually been preparing Saul for this for quite some time. When Saul is telling this story, Paul, telling the story again in Acts chapter 26 to King Agrippa, he adds a little detail. He says there, when Jesus says the vision, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts 26, we find that Jesus actually added something to that, which is to say, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what in the world is that? What's a goad? Well, a goad, very simply, was something that was used by a shepherd as a tool with sort of a sharp spear at the end of it that they would use to sort of keep sheep on paths. In other words, once the sheep started to wander, you sort of, you know, gave it a little stab to keep it in line. So what Jesus is saying is, Saul, long before you came to this place, I have been the one who had been delivering to you these, these little stabs at your heart in order to try to get you to realize the truth. And what was that truth? Well, I think that you get glimpses of this in at least a couple of different places in the New Testament. The first one is what we see in Romans chapter 7. This is one of the books that Paul wrote, reflecting on his time and his coming to Christ. And he says that before I was a Christian and I was looking at the law, everything was fine until I got to the 10th commandment that said you shall not covet. And here's the deal. When all of a sudden I realized that what God wanted me to do in the 10th commandment was to be content at all times with what he has given me and not long for something more, that I died when that came into my heart. I died. It crushed me. He fell apart. His conscience started to bother him because he knew he wasn't content. He knew he wasn't settled. I just had this image of, 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 of conscience-stricken Saul as he's leaning over the Bible trying to study it. And as he's staring at it, the further he gets into it, the further behind he feels. It racks his brain every time he's trying to teach a lesson about it. He feels the weight of God's holiness on him and how far he falls from it. 
Maybe he tries a little bit harder, but of course it never works. And over time, Jesus says, those have been goads, Saul. I'm the one delivering those little stabs at you. And it began to be a splinter in his mind. The second piece of evidence we get for this experience is what I think we get in the stoning of Stephen. Remember, I told you to pay attention last weekend because that's the longest sermon we have in the whole book of Acts, the sermon that Stephen preached before he was killed. And what's interesting about that is, is Luke had not yet joined Paul's missionary band when that experience happened. So where did Luke get his information about that sermon? It had to come from Saul. Paul himself related to Luke just what happened, which I think is the reason why you get that cryptic little sentence that we read last week at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, where it said, and Saul was there overseeing and approving it all. Ooh, I think that's the key. <laughs> Look, what I think, what I think Paul is saying is when all of a sudden he was standing watching Stephen die this amazingly heroic death. I mean, remember, I mean, Stephen looks up and he sees, he sees a vision of Jesus in the heavens and, 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 and there's this, this experience of, of, of glowing that sort of comes across of his face and he's so bold and he's so passionate, even in the face of people who are trying to kill him, even as he asks God for their forgiveness as he does. And can't you imagine Saul standing over Stephen's broken body and saying, that is integrity. That's what it is. And I don't have it. He knew it. And what Jesus is saying to him is, that's my goads. I'm stabbing you. Look, all of this energy that Saul has built up is what I think we started talking about last week. That whenever you get these outlandish out displays of zealousness you know, from fanatics, they're almost always ways of trying to deal with deep, powerful insecurities. The uh, philosopher and uh, psychologist Carl Jung once said, fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating for secret doubts. That's Saul. He was full of them. He's doubting. He's worrying. And so look, before we go on to the next point, it's worth asking this question. Has Jesus been stabbing at you with his goads? Because the very first step of Christian conversion is that you begin to look at and consider all of the pain of your personal history as God's trying to get your attention. That's the first step. It's God coming along to prepare you. But of course, for most of it, we do our best to shut it out. Or we decide, hey, you know, if God's going to stab me, I'm going to kick back at him. But the only person that we're hurting is ourselves, right? Why, why would we go through all this simply to harm ourselves? Well, Jesus is true, isn't he? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some of us have the scars to bear that out. So there's this idea of a preparing God. Secondly, though, you see this vision of Jesus. Because I can hear what you're thinking. You're like, okay, okay, okay. But what about this you know, amazing, blinding light vision that Paul had? Are we supposed to experience that like it says in verses 3 and 4? Surely that doesn't happen anymore. Well, and I think I can give a short answer to that. No, we don't believe so. The reason why is, is because there's something going on in Jesus very specifically commissioning Saul to be an apostle. And the office of apostle, we believe, does not continue in our day. Once the New Testament was completed in being written, that particular office faded away with that time. However, that does not mean that the meaning of the vision that Saul received is not very much accessible to us today. 
So that's the question, what was the meaning? Well, I think there's at least two things to this vision. The first one is this. The resurrected Christ has to be dealt with. It absolutely must be. These accounts are so interesting because over and over again in Acts, they keep saying all along that if, if Jesus is raised from the dead, that is the only thing that matters because his resurrection is definitive proof that God has done in him what he's promised. We, talk with this, we, we wrestle with this, do we not? We have, we have so many problems. We go through these seasons where we're like, I mean, really, can I believe that there's a God we go through these experiences of worrying about the reliability of the Bible. Do I really know whether the Bible that we have is the one that the apostles actually wrote? We get into textual transmission and all these doubts. But here's the deal. There really is a real sense in which the book of Acts is saying to you, okay, we can talk about those issues. But if Jesus is raised, they really don't matter. Because if that happened, and if that is true, and if it can be historically verified, then the conversation is over. I have to listen to what he says. I have to believe in him. This is the first assault, I think, that struck Saul in this moment. <clears throat> but the second thing that he got in the vision of Jesus came from the very thing that Jesus said to him, right? The, there's, a, there's a wonderful little commentary. It's kind of a commentary, more of a book, called The Message of Acts by a guy named Dennis Johnson. I've been very indebted to him really this entire semester. But he says there's something so profound in that statement that Jesus says. When he looks and goes, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> to which you could look at and realize that Saul's answer is almost kind of funny because he's like, uh, <laughs> I don't know who you are, but I'm not persecuting you at all. And I realize that you're probably confused because I was after these Christians down here. I wasn't sort of trying to persecute you. And yet it's as if Jesus is coming along and saying, look, you don't seem to understand. <laughs> I have such a radical and profound, intimate communion with my people that if you go after them, it's the same thing as going after me. You want to know why? Because the message that I came to bring is that what was true of my people became true of me on the cross, and my father executed me for it. Why? So that what is true of me can become true of them, that they can live in the light of the same sonship that I have for them. And all of a sudden, Johnson says, this explodes in Paul's mind, and in many ways it becomes the basis for every letter he writes in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, Paul comes in and would say, look, when Jesus died, you died with him. When Jesus was buried, this is all Romans chapter 6, when Jesus was buried, you were buried with him in baptism. In Ephesians 2, 6, he says, when Jesus was raised to the right hand of God the Father and seated, you were raised and seated at the right hand. In other words, Paul gets to the very heartbeat of Christianity. And I do think this is the time to ask the question, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? How would you define that? Because right here we get to the heart of the heart. It means to be in union with Jesus. That's the center. And that is saying, God is saying, I am going to treat you as if you had paid for all of your sins. Why? Because Jesus did. He says, I'm going to treat you as if you belong in a place of honor because I treat my son that way. Uh, uh, Tim Keller, uh, in, a, in a Bible study he had, 
reminded me of a, of a great story from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the old Welsh preacher, who did a lot of street evangelism. And he says one time he was speaking to an individual and kind of was going through some of the basics of the Christian faith. And at the end of it, he said, well, what do you think? Are you ready now to call yourself a Christian? Are you a Christian? And he said invariably the person would look at him and say something to the effect of like, well, you know, preacher, I'm trying. And of course, Lloyd-Jones is a little bit grumpy as, as an individual anyway, would just jump down his throat and be like, if that's what you think being a Christian is, you're trying, you haven't even made it out of the gate. Christianity is not, I'm trying. Christianity is not, I'm doing anything. Christianity only begins in something that he did, and I am in him. That's the message. That's the union. It reminds me of a... Um, Reminds me of a story that I keep going back to that I heard many years ago, actually from uh, Duncan Rankin in his wonderful book on, excuse me, Rankin Wilburn, his wonderful book on union with Christ, where he tells a story about the girl who spent a year working at Disneyland, and her job was to dress up like Mickey Mouse. Uh, think about this. And she said, it was amazing. I would come and I would dress up like Mickey, and I would kind of walk out of the little secret passageways that Disney hides from us all when we're there. And she said, as soon as I would walk out to the middle of a plaza, I, I got every head turned at me. All these little children would just be like, oh, it's Mickey. He's there. And they would come rushing up to me, and they would adore me. <laughs> they would be excited at the sight of me. They would almost worship me. And she said, slowly I began to realize that to the degree that I was in Mickey, <laughs> I was borrowing from Mickey's merit. I had Mickey's righteousness covering me. Literally. And she said it had a profound spiritual effect on me because she said my prayers began to change. She said, I used to pray like, Lord, is this what it's like to have had the world adore you? Is this what it's like for Sunday mornings to have the world gather around simply to honor you? Because this is what's nuts. Every Christian believes that that is what they are in for. Not here not during this time, but we are in to receive and be joint heirs with Jesus. Why? Because we are in him. That is union with Christ. That's the power. power. In the end, when it, comes to being a, when it comes to saying that I'm a Christian, it's, it's in many ways a simple different understanding of what it means to be you. So there's a vision of Jesus. Thirdly, we also see though that there's an entrance into a community. And frankly, there's not a more countercultural idea than this. Because in verse 11, we find that God never let Saul be a Christian by himself. He sends him into a community. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, and to the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. In other words, conversion is not just about Saul getting his little neuroses healed. It's about joining a body of people because what he had to learn was is Jesus is not here snatching up individuals so they can get on that good old gospel ship when they die. No, he's building a body of people, a worldwide society of Jesus communities who are themselves living by a different value system. Which means that there's two things that come from this. Number one, you get healing from God's community. And number two, you get to figure out exactly what happened to you. Let, let's do that second one first. Saul is brought to Ananias so that he can know what it was that just happened to him. 
When you first come into the Christian faith, there's no way that you can understand what God is up to. And oftentimes what you happen is new converts get very manic. They go up and down. They, they sort of live very high on the peaks and very low on the valleys. But what the community of Christ does is they come around and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. It's okay. Calm down. <laughs> We're going to take a next step. That's what the body does for us. And not only that, it introduces us to an historical community in the doctrines of the church. It teaches us that actually we've been working on this for some 2,000 years. And Jesus is still taking care of his people. Let us introduce that doctrine to you. Not only that, they come along to embody that doctrine. It's not just that we stand up and say, Jesus forgives people. It says, and now we are going to forgive each other. By the way, Jesus gets really, really cooked up when we don't forget each other. You know this. He doesn't like it at all. And when you read those passages, you're like, well, that's because Jesus is grumpy and mean. No. It's because he knows you will never grasp God's forgiveness of you if it's not embodied incarnated, if you will, in each other. You follow that? In other words, what happens when we come into a community is we begin to see Jesus telling me what's going on with me. That's a powerful, has, it, has that happened to you where you've seen the body of Christ differently? Reminds me of um, a, a skill set that Ginger and I have acquired because we've been to so many rehearsal dinners. I was in campus ministry for 25 years and so I've been to more rehearsal dinners than I can count. And we're masters now of what we call the rehearsal dinner toast. You know, we stand up and we sort of toast each other and say nice things to each other at one point. And I can tell you after all these years, there's a qualitative difference between a rehearsal dinner of people who are not Christians and a rehearsal dinner of people that are Christians. And I remember distinctly one Christian couple that was getting married and a friend of the grooms stood up at the rehearsal dinner and said, look, he said, I've been through a lot of things. I can't count how many times you, the groom, were the hand of Christ in my life. And I thought, that is really well said. You see what he had done? In his mind, he had looked at his friendship with the groom and their commonality in Christ, and he said, that was Jesus. That's how Jesus manifested himself, how he made himself tangible to me. So what we find is, is Paul needs community to figure out what happened to him. But secondly, it's because he feels judgment. He needs healing. No, he's blind. Blindness in the Old Testament was always judgment. And Saul knows it. I'll bet you that's what he's praying about. He's praying because he's living under judgment. And so all of a sudden, Ananias comes along. And I absolutely love the fact that the very first words that Saul ever hears another Christian say to him, our brother Saul. Can you imagine it? This man who likely had his hand at persecuting some of Ananias' friends and family says, you're my brother. He welcomes him in. See the power? Look, this is one, of the, one last thought before I move on to the last point, and that is please understand this was not easy for Ananias. I think verse 13 and 14 are there to sort of give us some encouragement that this is not easy. We come into this and we struggle early on to welcome people in. It's hard to do community, but it is absolutely the business of being a Christian. Still, Ananias finds those words. And what it does, it's healing for him. And that brings me to the fourth and final point. And that is that he gives him a newfound mission. Notice what it says in verse 15. Ananias says, God says to Ananias that Saul is to, quote, carry my name. What does that mean? It means that he's got a brand new mission in life. Hey, by the way, you do this all the time. <laughs> We all use names to sort of carry a name that gives, grants me the authority and the security that's granted by its use. 
Think about when you were a kid and you wanted to get into the restroom, but your sibling was inside, they had to lock the door. So you just, you knock on the door, let me in, let me in. Nothing happens, right? They just ignore you. But then what do you do? You go downstairs and you tell mama and daddy. And then you come upstairs with brand new confidence and you knock on the door and you're like, daddy says to let me in. Wasn't it magical how it opened that door? In other words, you took on the authority that came in that you didn't have on your own name, but you borrowed your father's name and it had power. This is the point. In Joel 2.32, when Joel says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That when Paul goes out to carry the name to the Gentiles, he says, I'm going out with the power and the authority that Jesus had to do the things that he came to do. So that when you carry God's name, it means that I am trying to act today to do what Jesus would have done had he been here physically. In other words, he's there to carry on the work that God has been doing in the world from the very beginning since the fall, which is to repair it all, to see the creation renewed by carrying the name. Okay, so what do you think? What did you think about this conversion? We see that there's a moment where we wake up and we find ourselves kicking against the very thing that's tormenting us. But then all of a sudden we discover Jesus who has the name above all names and he slowly becomes lovely to us. And, and then we join a community of people who affirm it and help us rally around the name. And now we bring that name to a needy world around us. That's, the, that's the conversion in Paul's experience. So here's my question. Do you have a boring testimony? Because regardless of the circumstances surrounding your coming to Christ, you realize there's actually no thing, no such thing. Because whether or not you had this, you know, marching down in life, 180 turnaround and nothing was the same afterwards, or whether you look back and say, you know, honestly, I've never known a time where I didn't know and love Jesus. Regardless, irregardless, we all carry the name and bear that burden to the world as our life's goal. Does that describe you? Now, a lot of that's a message to a Christian, but I, th I do think it's worth us at least asking, has it ever described you? But perhaps you might be coming to a time in your life where you look and realize, I don't know that I've ever heard that idea. I, I thought Christianity was a way to self-betterment and trying harder. Go back to that Jesus stuff again. The life of Saul is here for you this morning because it very well might be in a place like this where God tends to traditionally show up among his people they might draw people in for the first time. I wonder if that could happen here. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, give us the grace to consider and long for what happened to Saul. Maybe not with all the fireworks and the drama, but in every human heart. Father, even as we sing this song, would we rally around and take great joy in what you've come to do for us. Father, for those who know you and are converted, we pray that you would dig them deep in encouragement. But for those, Father, who not, who perhaps are hearing this for the first time, would you draw them unto yourself and bring them through to see you in a way that they might not have before? Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.